0: Haley. You guys sang with thankful hearts. Thanksgiving must have been good for you. How many of you had a good Thanksgiving? It's good. It's good to get a reset, isn't it? And be reminded of how much God has blessed us with. And what a blessing to see Jim Horn back with us. Jim, I am really thankful to see you this morning. And you hate that I just mentioned your name, don't you? You hate it with a passion. But I am really glad to see you this morning, and you've been through a lot. And it is so good, a reminder of the power of God's healing to see you here this morning. Um, We come to the end of Genesis chapter 49 this morning, and um, this is our next to last message in the book of Genesis. You guys can go ahead and applaud that too. (laughs) Um, Next week, we wrap it up. And what a bow God puts on the book for us next week. I am so excited to get to Genesis chapter 50, but I don't want to miss what God has for us in Genesis chapter 49. And then my plan is to celebrate all things Christmas from then on. How many of you are with me on that? Yeah, thank you. Those of you who are not, oh well. <sighs> Did you notice Pastor Andy even wore a Christmas green sweater this morning? uh Yeah. <laughs> He's just a regular Father Christmas, or not. Um, YouTube is a really cool thing because this week I went back and looked at something that I had remembered from years ago, and um, I actually found it on YouTube. Some, for, for some of us it may not be such a good thing, but in 2008 at the Big Ten indoor track and field meet, the championship. There was a young lady named Heather Dornadin who ran for the University of Minnesota. She, she was the favorite to win the 600 meter race. Now, for those of you who I'm sure all of you are huge football and indoor track fans, right? <laughs> the indoor track meet is, is different than an outdoor one meet. It's, it's a shorter, it's a shorter track, it's a 200 meter track, which means she had to do three laps. And for those of you not familiar with the 600-meter race, it is a full-out sprint for three laps, 600 meters. Um, On an outdoor track, that would be like a lap and a half. Those of us who have run before know that even just one lap around that track and we're wheezing and ready to die, right? 600-meter race, three laps. She's the favorite to win, and she set her race up really well. By the time she comes to the end of the second Lap, she is in second place where she needs to be, and she's about to kick it into high gear. As she kicks it into high gear, she passes the person in first place, and she makes the mistake of cutting in just a little too soon. And as she cuts back into lane one, her, her heel is clipped by the stride of the second place runner, and she goes down in a heap. And I mean, she rolls. The commentator at the time, and I had to go back and listen to it because I I thought I had heard this before, and it's true. He says this, there's no point in even getting up. She's out of it. There's no point in even getting up. She's out of it. Okay, those of you who like Hollywood endings, you're going to like how this ends. You already know what's going to happen, right? There's five racers in the race. She gets up, The the way she fell was kind of fortuitous. I told you she rolled. She somersaulted twice, came right back up on her feet. Doesn't do the typical thing like checking for bleeding and bruising like I would do, right? She gets up and she takes off sprinting. She only has 200 meters left. By the time she gets to the second turn of four turns, she's already clipped off two of of the racers. She has three to go. Wouldn't you know it? She got up and sprinted, and she won that race by the slimmest of margins. If she would have listened to the commentator, she would have done what? She'd have stayed down. Over the last few weeks, we have witnessed and we have brought this to bear several times that Jacob finishes well. Jacob had that Heather Dornadin in him. He had he had, had plenty of trip-ups And he had plenty of obstacles in his life. Many of them were self-induced falls, if you will. He had faced a lot of adversity. It was full of hard knocks and sin and disappointment and harsh adversities. And quite honestly, I don't think any of us would have faulted Jacob if he had just stayed down. Jacob, just stay down. (laughs) You know, there's no point in even trying to get to the finish line. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, we read this, that we are to hold fast our original confidence firm to the end, firm to the end. And this morning, church, as we begin and we, and we look at Jacob one last time, I, I am so glad that we have Jacob's example for us in the scripture. He held on firm to the end. And we're going to see that in the, in the last half of Genesis 49 this morning. And there is this reality, and I believe it with all my heart, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, he will hold you to the end. Do you believe that, church? He will hold you to the end. But there is also this reality that while he holds us to the end, we ourselves have to persevere to the end. There's the both and of it. We, he's holding us till the end. But we have to persevere. We have to stick with it. We can't give up. We have to keep going. And the truth of the matter is, as long as we're aware that he's holding us fast, we will persevere to the end. Jacob models perseverance to us. And I want you to see it this morning as he pronounces the last of his blessings to his son, and then just even in the way that he passes away in our text this morning. So if you have your Bible, Genesis 49 this morning, verse 13 was where we're going to pick up. Remember last week we saw the blessing, which really wasn't much of a blessing on Reuben and on Simeon and Levi, and then we saw this unexpected blessing on Judah. And so now he picks up again with birth order here in verse 13 And we'll go to the end of the chapter. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear, and he became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid, Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich. He shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful thorns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart by his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to each of them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess it as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. What a beautiful description of death. What a beautiful description of death. I know that's a weird thing to say, but I hope when you die, you're gathered to your people. Not necessarily your family, but to your people. And that's our desire. Let's pray this morning before we open God's word. Our Father, I pray this morning that you would give us that hopeful confidence that Jacob left this life with. Lord, I pray that you would give to us that big view of God that Jacob had right up till the end. And Lord, I pray that, that even we would learn lessons from Jacob this morning as he parented and grandparented right to the end, I pray. Do that work in our hearts, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this morning, as we talk about finishing well, and and, and, and notice we want to talk about finishing well, and to finish well, you kind of have to forget what's in the past. How many of you have things in your past that are forgettable? How many of you have a lot of things in your past that are forgettable? One of the ways that we're going to finish well is by forgetting what's in the past and and even following the example of Christ, laying a hold of those things that are ahead of us. But as we finish well this morning, I want us to see three things here. One, that Jacob parented well right to the end. He parented well right to the end. Secondly, I want us to see that he finished with a mammoth. I have in my notes big view, but I changed it on the fly. I'm allowed to do that. I'm the one who wrote the sermon. He finished with a mammoth view of God. Thirdly, he finished with a hopeful confidence. So let's delve into this this morning. Beginning at verse 13, Jacob by now is a, is a grandfather quite possibly he's a great-grandfather, but, but he's still a father, and he is still going to be a father to the end. And so what you have here is him pronouncing these blessings, and, and I believe that he got these blessings from directly from God. As he's pronouncing these blessings, these, these are given to him by God as he's, as he's handing them out to his sons, and, and you would think that the sons of his handmaids, of, of, of those women who really weren't his wives, but were the servants of his wives, you would think he would pronounce less of a blessing on them. But what we see here this morning is that he took his responsibility to those sons very seriously in, in providing these blessings. And so he begins in verse 13 with Zebulun. It says that Zebulun would dwell at the sea, but actually, if you look on a map, and and if you take the time to do that, you'll find out that Zebulun didn't settle right by the Mediterranean, but he settled in an area on a a well-known trade route that ran between the Mediterranean and and the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Zebulun was. And so Zebulun literally, his, his area, the tribe that he ended up living in, the area that he ended up living in, was fed by the sea from both ends was fed by the sea from both ends. It was on this important trade route. And, and, and then you continue on in verses 14 and 15. And if you can tell, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking all these different blessings this morning. I think there's greater meat here than just these blessings. But in verses 14 and 15, we have Issachar. It was a tribe located just south of where Zebulun was in, in, a, in a very fertile area there in the land of Israel. And so he was going to be a strong tribe full of warriors, and what's interesting is he says, you're going to become a servant at forced labor there at the end of verse 15. What's interesting about the tribe of Issachar is they, they lived in this great fertile land, and they should have been able to succeed very well, but they willingly gave themselves into slavery. And they, they, this prophecy comes true of them. They became servants by choice to many. Verses 16 and 17 deal with, with Dan. Dan. Anybody know a famous person who came from the tribe of Dan? One of the judges? Samson. Samson came from the tribe of Dan. And so, whenever he says, You will judge your people, that came very true in the person of Samson. They eventually left the inherited land that they had been given, they were run out by the Philistines. And, and, and what is today in presently known area of Palestine. The Philistines became the Palestinians. And the Philistines were, have constantly been a thorn in the side of Israel. We shouldn't be surprised that they still are today. And if you were paying attention when, you, when Dave read the psalm this morning, Israel has been under siege for a long time, haven't they? But God is still on his throne. But it's interesting to note that, that in the middle of all of this, in, in the middle of, of Dan and being prophesied that he's going to judge his people, but he's going to be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel. He's going to, he's going to, have, a, he's going to have offspring that they're going to be up to shenanigans, is really what he's saying there. They're not going to be a great people. In the middle of all of that, Jacob what seems to be in the wrong place for this, he just blurts out verse 18. Take a look at verse 18. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. What's interesting to me is, he's doing this in the list of of the blessings, and we pointed out last week that these blessings aren't always the kind of blessings that we think about, these happy things. These blessings that he's pronouncing on his sons it's as if Jacob realizes that the only hope for his children is God's salvation. As he's pronouncing these things that really aren't great blessings on them, he just blurts out, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I know this is a touching subject, and this is, this is one that's hurtful for many of us in this room. But, but we all as parents, and as specifically parents of adult children, of, as grandparents of children who are walking away from the Lord, we struggle with that. Do we not, parents? We struggle with that. We wrestle with that. God, what did I do wrong? God, what could I have done better? Why is it? And, and we turn our prayers to be about us rather than praying to an all-powerful God who is their salvation. And notice what Jacob does here. He understands that the only way that Dan or Naphtali or Issachar or Simeon or Levi or any of his sons are going to turn out, the only way it's going to happen isn't in his great parenting techniques, which he did not have. It isn't in the inheritance that he left them. It isn't the legacy that he has given to them. It's not even in the blessings. The only way that they're going to make it is if God is their salvation. Parents of young children, parents of young children, pay close attention here this morning. Do not fall into the trap that the world wants to set for you by making your children your God. They're not your children, by the way. They're God's children, are they not? They belong to Him. And we fall into that trap very easily. We get our little Instagram posts of our perfect little children in perfect little fields at fall with perfect little pumpkins. And, what, and every parent knows that just off the other side of the camera are ten pumpkins that that kid is broken. <laughs> right? And in the world that we live in today, we, we begin to believe the lie that we can have perfect children. We don't have perfect children. We have a perfect God. And the only hope for our kids is if we humbly just beg of the Lord, God, I wait for your salvation for my children. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew the switch that there was to flip in our children's heads? How many of you parents would sign up for that? If I just knew the switch I could flip. There's no switch. It's the work of the Holy Spirit on a child's heart. And we have to beg God for it every day. And we have to model that it is a good thing to live under the authority of God to our children. That's the one thing we're called to do. That that we're to model that God is a good and loving authority and it's good to be submitted to him. And then we have to leave it all in the rest in God's hands, don't we? Jacob, as he's pronouncing these blessings... He, 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 he says this. He says, your salvation. And what's interesting to me is the Hebrew word for that is Yeshua. And he basically is saying, I am waiting for the Messiah. I am waiting for the Messiah. I'm waiting for the one who can save my children. I am waiting for your salvation, God. Can I point this out while I'm pointing out bad parenting this morning? And I know this because I'm an expert at it. Really bad parenting is parenting as if you can be your child's salvation. Parents, can you do anything to save your children? It's a humbling thing, isn't it? You can't even keep your kids from being sick. Have you figured that out yet? You can't keep your kids from making bad choices. You can't keep your kids from being sick. You can't keep your kids asleep. I know because I see your faces on Sunday morning. (laughs) I know that because I had kids I couldn't keep asleep too. It's the beauty of grandchildren when they don't sleep, you send them away. All the grandparents said, amen, right? But what an example he sets to us, those of us who are grandparents, and some of you who have the joy of being great grandparents in this room, what a model Jacob sets for us. You can't save your grandchildren, but you can pray them to the one who can. You can pray them to the one who can. And ultimately, Jacob realizes that his only hope, and the only hope for his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, is the salvation that comes from Jehovah. And then he continues on in verses 19 through 21, pronouncing blessings on Gad and Asher and Naphtali, basically predicting prosperity and riches and victory for them. And then I want to skip down to verse 27, where he pronounces the blessing on Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. What's interesting about that is, is that of all the tribes of Israel, probably the fiercest ones, the ones that you would not want to tangle with, would be the Benjamites. And some pretty well-known Benjamites that you wouldn't want to tangle with were two guys named Saul, Okay, first King Saul, and then a guy who was Saul, who had later became Paul. And you know what? When he was still Saul, you didn't want to mess with him, did you? You didn't want to mess with him. They were known for producing brave warriors from that tribe. Go back up to verse 22, Joseph. And as he's pronouncing blessings on Joseph here, remember that he's already given the double blessing to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? Right? And as he describes Joseph in verse 22, he's a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. And the picture here is of a vine that, that, is, that is so fruitful, and it's so large and so massive that it doesn't just stay on the trellis, it just goes all the way over the wall. And it just like keeps on being a blessing to others. And that's what Joseph has become. Joseph, literally, through Joseph and his obedience, the people of the world have been saved in a famine, have they not? And he pictures that for us, but Jacob remembers all the adversity that Joseph had to overcome. And in many ways, in pronouncing this blessing on Joseph, he's pronouncing to his other sons, I know what you did. I know what you did. He doesn't have to come right out and say it. But look at verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Who were the first archers, if you will, in Joseph's life? It were his 10 it was his 10 brothers, wasn't it? And Jacob knows. That they took their shots at him. He knows. He's now heard the story from Joseph of what happened to him when he got there in Egypt. He knows all about Potiphar's wife. He knows about how he was forgotten in prison. He knows all these details. And he says this Joseph, in spite of it all, noticed "Hmm. your bow remained unmoved in verse 24. You were faithful. You were faithful. You didn't let it change you. You didn't let it affect you. Which leads us right into our second point. Because Jacob, I think, learned and had reinforced in his life a huge, mess, a huge important message, a huge important, um, if you will, principle that, that carried him right to the end. And that is, is that he had this mammoth view of who God is. Now, before I unpack this point, I want you just to stop and pause for a second. And I want you in your mind to put an image or a paragraph of words, whatever it is, whatever you, the way you think, and I want you to put in your mind how you view God. Maybe you view Him in an Isaiah 6 way. Maybe you view Him in a Revelation 20, 21 way. Maybe you view him as a father. But I want you to picture in your mind how you view God. Now that you got that image in your mind, how many of you are are willing to say, I have a really robust image of who God is? (laughs) It's hard for us. Let's be honest. It's hard for us to get a, a view of God. Is it not, church? It's hard for us to get a good understanding of who God is. But I want to tell you, Jacob on his deathbed had a much larger view of God than when he was first on this planet. And notice he gives five names to God in a really short space. And I want to just unpack those names here in just a few minutes here to to help us to understand how Jacob viewed this God. So, Let's pick up the account here as he's talking about Joseph. It's like he says this at the beginning of verse 24, yet his bow or his bow remained unmoved. And then he says this his arms were made agile. And then he describes this God who worked in Joseph's life, this God who we're going to see is very personal to Jacob. Notice the first name he gives him the mighty one of Jacob. The mighty one of Jacob. Up until this point, when Jacob would refer to God, and I don't have time to take us back to it, he would refer to God as the God of his fathers or the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And now, how does he refer to this God? He's my God. He's the mighty one of Jacob. And as you think back over Jacob's life and as you think back over your life, how many of you need a mighty one? We all need a mighty one, don't we? We don't need one of these wimpy little gods that are out there like little statues or, or, or these things that are written about in folklore or a god like Ohio State football. Man, I had to be reminded of that again yesterday. We don't need those pathetic gods, do we? We need a mighty one. We need an all-powerful one. And we need him to be our God. But you think about Jacob. When he left Beersheba to go to Haran, did he need a mighty God? When he he was there under Uncle Laban's, you know, pretenses and and serving serving Uncle Laban and being taken advantage of, did he need a a powerful God? And he had a powerful God who actually got him out from the, the thumb of Uncle Laban as a very wealthy man. Only a mighty God can do that. Do you agree with me, Church? When, when he was about to have to encounter Esau again, did he need a mighty God? Yeah. <laughs> did he need a mighty God to, to reunite him with his son Joseph one day? Yeah, he did. And he says, this is not just a God for you, Joseph. This is my mighty God. Parents, parents. Don't just teach your children about God like He's some impersonal being out there. Teach your children and model for your children, more importantly than teaching your children, that He is your God and that you depend on Him and that He supplies you and that He takes care of your family and that He is your salvation. There's a difference there, isn't there? And the truth of the matter is, if he's not your God, then he's not going to be readily explainable to your children as their God. Do you see God as your God? Is he mighty in your life? Do you see him as sovereign over all in your life? And you say this I know that God is sovereign over all, but then you live differently like he truly isn't sovereign. Because it's not enough to say that he's sovereign. The way that you actually demonstrate that he's sovereign is when you orient your life to the fact that he's in charge. And there's a difference. There's a difference between saying, I know God's in charge, but I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to worry about stuff, and I'm going to try and control stuff. And let's be honest, a lot of us are control freaks, and we don't want to admit it. You know the reason we're control freaks? is because we don't believe that God is really in control. We think we have to do it. Hmm. So much more I could say there. But let's move on. Not only is he the God of Jacob, but look again in verse 24, the mighty one of Jacob. And from there is the, what's the next one, church? Shepherd. When you call, she- when you call God shepherd, what are you implying that you are? You're implying that you're sheep. Pastor Andy did a great job of unpacking that for us. But when you call God shepherd, you're saying you're a sheep. And let's be honest, sheep are ultimately dependent upon a shepherd, are they not? Let's be honest. It is humbling to refer to yourself, or it should be humbling, to refer to yourself as a sheep. One of the things, when we start to unpack Christmas messages here in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out that Christ humbled Himself. And one of the most humbling titles, I think, given to Christ is the fact that He's the Lamb of God. Lambs are utterly dependent, are they not? And when you and I call God our shepherd, when we callously quote Psalm 23, when we say those words, if we don't really understand the meaning of that, what we are saying is we are nothing, we aren't taken care of, we aren't supplied, we won't get rest, we won't get fed, unless we have a God who is our shepherd. And that's a humbling place to be. There's dependence there. Friend, This morning, do you see yourself as dependent on God or are you able to take care of yourself very well? Thank you. Jacob, at the end of his life, has this huge view of God. And are you seeing here that a huge view of God means that you have a pretty small view of who? Yourself. Thirdly, he says this From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The stone of Israel. Israel is another name for who? Jacob. Israel isn't a nation yet. He's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about himself again. And what he is saying is, he is my rock. He is my foundation. He is the one I can depend on. And and what he is saying here to his sons and to Joseph is this. There is nobody that you can depend on. Joseph learned that the hard way, didn't he? There's no one you can depend on other than the rock. Other than the stone of Israel, my rock. Again, parents, this just seems fitting here. Every day, even with our adult children, we have an opportunity to train into them and model for them who we trust in. You know, you know that horrible thing that always seems to happen right at Christmas time or right after Christmas time? You know, something breaks. Something expensive breaks, right? Right? Am I right? And, and your bank account has been drained because you all think that you are father and mother Christmas, right? Right? Except for Pastor Andy. Um, and what happens? you begin to worry, right? You begin to fret over it. Like, who's going to pay these bills? Do you ever find yourself doing this? God, I just want you to know, I'm sure you're aware of this because you know all things, your car broke down. (laughs) Now, you might think I'm being disrespectful. I'm not. Whose car is it? Your dishwasher broke, and I'm not sure if you want us to start hand washing or if you want to fix it. I'm not being disrespectful. It's his, right? Or do you do this? Okay, I can pull a couple extra shifts. I can do this. We can we can shortchange a couple bills here, and we can make this happen. Now, I'm not saying that God didn't give you a brain to do that stuff with, but who do you ultimately depend on? What do your kids see, parents? What do they see, and who do they see as you depending on? When they stand at your casket, are they going to say, My daddy was such a good provider. We never needed anything. Or are they going to say, my daddy connected us to God who was our great supplier? Because there's a difference there. There's a difference there. Continue on. Verse 25, by the God of your father. (laughs) And he's directing this right to Joseph. And he's passing this on to, to Joseph. And he says, trust in the god of your father and i love this this is this is like this is parenting like like 400 graduate school level here but this is really good stuff when you pass on to your children i know you can't save your children but you can pass on to your children you can depend on this god who has been a faithful god to your father He's, he's teaching Joseph here, he's showing to Joseph here that, that this God is powerful, that this God is trustworthy, that this God is a good God, this is a God who can be depended on. That's a big view of God. God. And then he ends up by saying this, he's the Almighty One, the El Shaddai, the God of blessing. And then he, then he pronounces all these blessings. And the only way that he can pronounce the blessings in verses 25, 26, and 27, or verses 25 and 26, the only way he can pronounce those blessings on Joseph is because there is a covenant-keeping God. So Jacob finished well by parenting to the very end. He finished well by having this mammoth view of who God is. And, and let's just stop and think about that. Does it really matter the things that we really care about in life if we don't have a big view of God? Think about it. So if you don't get that promotion, or don't get that bonus that's supposed to be coming to you at year end, does it really matter if you have a mammoth view of God? You don't, you don't get the dreams that you had. And, and I've talked with many of you who are at that point of retirement or on the verge of retirement, and I think everybody gets to retirement and, and they have some sort of dream of some kind, some dream really big, some dream really small, some just dream of not ever, ever have to have an alarm clock, right? But if your dreams that you had for retirement aren't exactly what you thought they were going to be, does it really matter if you have the right view of who God is? It really doesn't matter, does it? I think Jacob, if we could ask Jacob, and if Jacob would be really honest with us, Jacob, did your life turn out exactly like you had mapped it out to be? He would probably say, oh man, no. But you know what mattered at the end to Jacob? He had a correct mammoth view of who God was. And because of that, thirdly, he's able to finish with confident hope. He's able to finish with confident hope. Verse 29, he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Stop there. Now, the English doesn't do the original justice here, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce the original words because I stink at Hebrew. But what he is saying here is, when he says, I'm about to be gathered with my people, what he's, about, what he's saying here is, my spirit is about to join those people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I am about to be gathered with my people. And I, if I have one prayer for all of you, as those that I love and care for, as sheep that have been put under my care, is that when you die, you can confidently say, when I leave this life, I'm going to my people. Do you know that this morning? That when I die, I'm going to my people. It's good to have people, isn't it? And what he's saying is, my spirit's about to join Abraham and Isaac, not just because they're my blood relatives, but because they're my faith relatives. I'm about to join up with them, and I'm going to be there with my grandmother, and I'm going to be there with my mother, and I'm going to be there with my wife. And oh, by the way, since I'm going to be with them in spirit, I want you to take my bones and put them with their bones because I want that to be a visible sign to you, my sons, that one day those bones aren't going to be there anymore. They're going to be reunited with our spirits in glory. I do a lot of funerals. Duh, right? I do a lot of funerals. There is nothing sadder than standing at a graveside where you say the final earthly goodbye when you know the person, the body, the body that's in that casket. You know where they are and they're not in glory. There's nothing sadder. There's nothing sadder than standing with people who know where they are. By God's grace, I'll live long enough by God's grace not predicting, not presuming on God, but by God's grace, I'll live long enough to do many of your funerals in this room. Nothing gives me greater joy at a funeral than to be able to confidently say, based upon this person's testimony and the way that they live their life, I know that the words of First Thessalonians 4 are true, that one day this grave is going to blow open and that body is going to be reunited with their spirit in heaven. And nothing makes me sadder than to walk away from that graveside with doubt in my mind. He's saying here, I'm looking for a city, like Hebrews 11 says. I'm looking for the city, kids. I'm looking for the city whose builder is God. And I'm about to get there. And he's finishing with a confident hope. How are you going to finish your race? How are you going to finish your race? How are you going to do it? I know, little kids in the room, you don't even want to think about this race. But here's the thing, you don't know how many years or days you have in your race. None of us knows, do we? Our race could be up today. You think you have have years to the finish line. You think you have all kinds of time to make things right. You don't know what you have. What you do know is is that you're in the race right now. Right? And maybe you're like that, that girl from Minnesota who got knocked down. And maybe you're thinking in that split second as you hit the ground, it ain't worth getting up. Can I say to you, because of the hope that is in Christ, it is always worth it to get up and run, and forget what's happened to you, and just pursue him with everything you've got, as long as you have that hope at the end. The songwriter has written it this, this way, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls belong to him? And then he writes, oh sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. How did Jacob have this hope? Because his mind was, as the old hymn says, stayed upon Jehovah, stayed upon Jehovah. We don't know when our race is going to end, but here's the thing I do know. If you're not even entered in the race, you can't finish well, right? If you're not running the race, the Christian race, if if you're not walking with Christ, if you're not one of His, you're not even in the race. And the only way to get in that race is to reject yourself and your self-righteousness and your propensity to want to save yourself and to have that, that verse 18 mentality, I wait for your salvation, God. The only way you get into the race is to realize you can't save yourself. And by faith, trust the one who died in your place so that you can be saved. Maybe this morning you're here and you're like, P.D., if you knew my story, I'd make Jacob's story look like he was a choir boy. I don't care. Here's the thing I know. God knows your story, and He still sent His Son to die for you. Right? Is that not true? God knows your story, and He still sent His Son to die for you. Maybe you've stumbled and tripped up so much, and you're wondering if it's even worth getting up to run. You made a profession of faith, and, and at times you've had growth in your life, and, you, and, you, and you've, you've made some advances, but every time you advance, you feel like you go back two steps. Anybody else there? It's worth getting up and running. It's worth getting up and running. You don't know. You may be on your last lap. You don't know. Maybe you thought you were running a marathon, and you're only running a 600-meter I know this, his grace will sustain you if you have to run the marathon, just as much as if you only have to run one more lap of the 600. What is our hope in life and death? What is your hope in life and death? I pray that it's Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for the life of Jacob, what lessons we learn from it. And I pray for these whom I love in this room and and those who can't be with us today. I pray, my, my prayer for them is, is that they would finish the race well. That they would finish it with a big view of who you are. That they would finish it with confident hope. Not empty dreams, but confident hope that it can only come through Christ and Christ alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.